the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 2. It's a delight to do so with George Kaloff. He is the managing partner at the Resolute Group and the president of Data Orbital. We check in with him usually on Fridays um, to discuss politics, politics of the day, politics of the week. He is uh, the best uh, political consultant I know. George, welcome back. How are you doing, man? I'm good. Always good to be on with you, Seth, Thanks. in the week. Thanks a lot. Uh, one of the big areas you're focused, you've focused a lot of your work and attention on over the years is education. Now, we were noting earlier on my monologue, there's this interesting thing going on. So the Parents' Bill of Rights Act, um, here's what NBC says about it, okay? the parent. This is NBC, so, you know, fairly mainstream uh, media organization by any account. The Parents' Bill of Rights Act would require public school districts to publicly post information about curricula for students, including providing parents with a list of books and reading materials available in school libraries. The House-passed GOP-sponsored legislation Friday aimed at providing parents with more information about their children's educations, marking the congressional Republicans' foray into culture war battles taking place across the country. We're the ones entering the culture war here, George, uh, because we want um, more parent involvement and interest and understanding of the curricula for students. We're entering the foray of the culture war here. We're starting it. It's just, uh, this is our fault because all we're asking for is accountability in the public schools, you know, where teachers and school boards have to actually meet with and discuss and post the curricula to the parents, you know, the people who are paying for the schools. And that's the thing that is uh, interesting to me, Seth. I mean, there's a lot of things, obviously, that have to do with the cultural war. To me, this basic notion and understanding that parents should be determining how their children are educated uh, are educated um, applies whether it's to curricula, whether it's to where they go to school or how they get educated. Going back in our country for a while relative to homeschooling and different things, parents are the ones that should be in charge but again, it's seemingly for pockets of our country, particularly on the left, it is a controversial thing to say, and that makes you then enter the culture war, which then has a whole bunch of other connotations, because we believe parents should know what their students are learning, what their kids are learning. Again, it's, it's something that was not even something that was talked about, I suppose. And I mean, it was talked about, but COVID really brought it to everyone's attention because parents started saying what their kids were learning because their kids were learning from home. Um, but it's, again, much broader than the cultural war. It's a question in America, which is who determines how education is delivered? Is it the state? Is it the bureaucracy? Is it the parent? Uh, so, uh, is it the teacher? Or is it the parent? You know, the funny thing about this, there are funny thing is the wrong way to cast this. The ir- ironic, one of the many ironies surrounding this whole issue, George, I don't hear a lot of people talking about this part of it is you've been around the education issues for a long time. What up until three years ago, prior to COVID, BC, before COVID, before COVID era, BCE, before COVID, when there was the Red for Ed movement or any really you know, movement to help teachers with their salaries or work conditions, what was the first complaint 
you would always hear from teachers. It was that we're being asked to do too much. We're being asked to do the work of the parents. We're we're being asked to do the work that should be taking place at home. That was the complaint. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And now, wow, just give it three years and the teachers want this job, evidently. They want to be responsible for the sexualization and racialization and ethoses of the children. Yeah, and, and look, the, the even bigger problem, there are way too many examples of superintendents, of teachers, of elected officials on the left, um, of school board individuals that talk some variation of this. Uh, parents are not educated enough. What do they know? We know better. There was a woman here in Arizona testifying against the curriculum transparency bill. Well, I have a master's degree. This is the question she asked in committee. I have a master's degree. What do parents have? Yeah. Well, parents birth, birth these kids and they're responsible for them. Right? That aside, elected officials talking about how some parents are not educated enough right. to know and how to make these decisions because they barely graduated from high school. And so now all of a sudden we should strip those parents of the ability to make these decisions. Or something that's even more egregious is that parents' rights, there was a video that came out of a superintendent, I believe, in New Mexico. I'm yeah. not sure what district it yeah. said. Parents' rights end when students walk into yeah. the classroom. That's right. The parents' rights ends at the schoolhouse door. This is this is where the state is the parent. That's that's the mark of every socialist organism I've ever known. The state is the parent. Father Fidel. Uh, that's that's what that that's what the Gonzalez family talked about when he was returned to Cuba. My father Fidel. This is this is exactly what's taking place here. Which is why you got the complaint. The famous. Well, now somewhat famous speech, if it, if I can say as much, it only was delivered yesterday from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who decided to say, when we talk about pro- progressive values, I can say what my progressive value is, and that is freedom over fascism. Keep the culture wars out of the classrooms. Well, who put them there, and why is she bringing up the word progressive? Where is that anywhere written as something that should be injected into the discussion as to what should take place at our schools? Yeah, yeah, and frankly, Seth, I think you and I would agree, and and frankly, most people on the on the on the political and ideological right would agree we don't want cultural wars no. in the classrooms, which is why we don't want this taught in the classroom. Right. Culture wars and not a culture wars discussions that are of that level are reserved in where into the home because it's within the family nucleus. That's right. That's where those discussions belong, not in the classroom. So we believe the same things they believe. We're just talking about it very differently in terms of how to take the culture wars out of the classroom. And it's so odd. And there would be a simple test. Here's a simple test. I issue it with some reluctance because I have a feeling the answer may be different in a year. But here's the simple test. Name me an education assessment you know of, whether it's in Arizona, whether it's in New Mexico, whether it's in California, or whether it's the NAEP, the uh, Nation's Report Card, that tests these things, the outcomes on these things. They don't. They test math and language arts or reading. They test civics. They they test science. They test history. They don't test. There are no below basic, basic, uh, proficient, and advanced scores on racial and sexual awareness yet. But that is the tell. That's what the schools are supposed to be for, right? 100%. Look, there are times and a place. When I was in fifth grade, sixth grade, there was sex ed. How everyone has sex ed. But it was sex ed about 
using deodorant and, you know, that you have to start shaving, you know, if you have sounds a beard more or a like man or whatever. Yeah. They, okay. Right? right? It, it I mean, sounds more like home ec, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but that's what that was, right? I mean, that wasn't, and then look, I'm not that old. I mean, that, that I'm not talking, this is back in the 80s or 70s, the sex ed. We're talking here, this is in the early 2000s, right? As an example, now look at where sex ed is. And, and the point is not to talk about, I mean, there's egregious examples of just something horrific that came out of Oregon and things that are being, you know, that are being taught to children or that are being asked of children. That's not the point. The point is, not the, the the what it's the who yeah uh, do yeah. teachers even if it's yeah. look there is a there is a role for a teacher to play in basic things or for a school to play in basic sure. things because the school does have the audience and the, and the attention of a student a big chunk of the day and a big chunk of a week and then in turn a big chunk of their lives sure. but what parents want and research backs this up is that when you're k through six they want their children taught fundamentals how to read write how to do math how to prepare for becoming then a young adult and then yeah. when you're a young adult you're seven through 12, you want to be taught how to prepare to be an adult, how to prepare for college or trade school, how to prepare to fully function, how to have critical thinking skills. Nowhere in there do parents want to seed the ground to say, I want my teacher to teach my kids about sexuality and right. about sexual pleasure, right. as an example. Right. That's not the point. Right. And so, look, it shouldn't be a debate about, well, do teachers want to show curriculum or not? And is it a nuisance or not? Parents need to be involved in the education of their children. It doesn't matter if they're in private school, private Christian school. Uh, you know, micro school, look, look, we can't determine, and I think you would agree, the state can't make someone a good parent or bad parent. So some parents may, you know, not be involved and may seed that ground, but that does not mean that wholesale parents should be excluded from intentionally participating with their child's education or leading their child's education, this, even if they This do was not, not a controversial point. This was not, I mean, Supreme Court history going all the way back to the 1920s is that the child is not the creature of the state. It is the parent's right to direct the destiny of the child. Uh, that's a unanimous Supreme Court opinion with progressives and conservatives on it from 1925. This is, this is an entirely new this is an entirely new thing that we are asking our teachers and schools to do. But what's interesting about it is I don't think that sentence is correct. I don't think we are asking them to do it. I think they are taking it on themselves, and I think they have the urgings of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and I think they have the urgings of them because they think that the children are the new front lines on the battles, the new infantry for our culture wars. 100%. That's me, what they're let, being used for. That's that's exactly what they're being used for. We are we are again, once again, and maybe this is this is a this is a, a COVID era thing. Maybe this is a CE thing. We are once again using children to soothe the problems, anxieties, and political battles of adults. It's a terrible thing to put them through, and we wonder why their mental distress is through the roof. George, let me um, let me put let me do a quick commercial break. You can stay another segment, right? I want to talk to you a Let's little bit it. about. Uh, Oh, Kamala Harris, Ron DeSantis, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. Yeah, we'll do it all with George Kyle when we come right back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. George Kaloff is our guest from the Resolute Group and Data Orbital. Uh, George, I... Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking, you know, foreign policy as well. And I'm just looking at, at, at Biden's statements from Canada today in regard to uh, the uh, the bombing of uh, the, the bombing from the Iran Revolutionary Guards uh, with a drone that we couldn't take out. Uh, he says, we're going to continue to keep up our efforts to counter terrorist threats in the region in partnership with Canada and other members of the coalition to defeat 
ISIS. All the intelligence was that this was a, an Iranian attack, and he said that's what we did last night. Well, it didn't work. We got hit again in Syria. Uh, George, we have we have a real problem with leadership in this country. We have a real problem with leadership in this country that's in Canada right now. Leadership, right, as we, we talk about leadership a lot, has many facets. One of them is strength. And one of the most important things so that we don't have to send our sons and daughters abroad uh, to war, uh, something that our country has grappled with, and frankly, we've spent a lot of time grappling with recently in regards to the Iraq war, for example, uh, we avoid that by projecting leadership. When someone is weak, they get taken advantage of. When someone is strong, no one dares cross them. Right now, we're not in a strong position, which means people are trying to cross us. People are trying to test our buttons, push our buttons. They're trying to test us, and we are we keep failing. We as a, as a royal, we as a nation keep yeah. failing. And so when Biden speaks that way and fundamentally misunderstands what's happening, while, by the way, at the same time, <laughs> China's brokering deals yeah. between nations like Iran yeah. and Saudi Arabia and is apparently now brokering another deal between uh, a couple of other Middle Eastern countries, that is a major problem for us because they then turn into powers and now potentially Iranian oil could be bought in yens, not dollars. I mean, there's all kinds of implications. We're asleep at the wheel. Why aren't we playing those roles? Why are we leaving it up to other nations as another example? Well, because we do things like this, George. Uh, We have, I bet you didn't know we had this position. We have an education activity chief for diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Defense Department because we do things like that. We're doing education activities in diversity, equity, and inclusion. You may have seen the hearing on this person who was uh, condemning uh, this, uh, this, 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 this now former education activity chief who was sending out tweets uh, blaming white people for their caudacity, um, which is evidently a term I didn't know it means it's a mix of Caucasian and, and audaciousness, I suppose. But, but yeah, right, we're, we're learning new, 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 new words on the fly here. But this is the Department of Defense. when they're, they're involved in everything but what the Department of Defense should be doing. This is a problem. This is the same problem with the schools. They are involving themselves on things they have no business doing, and thus the other stuff slides. Thus our reading scores and our math scores slide. Thus, Iran can push us around in Syria. Thus, Afghanistan can push us around in Afghanistan. Thus, Russia can push us around in Ukraine. Thus, China is soon going to be able to push us around in Taiwan. We're not doing the stuff we were constitutionally, small c, and constitutionally, capital C, designed and uh, mandated to do. So we're not able to do the serious stuff. We're doing the absurd. Uh, 100%. I was at a talk yesterday at a conference where someone from the UK who's in the House of Lords was talking about um, education and different implications in the UK and America. And he made a number of comments, not in in a degrading way, but made a number of comments to say, you all are really worried about all of these things, and we are really hoping a lot of these things don't make it to the United Kingdom. And yeah. when they have, we've tried to squash them. Right. That's how people around the world are viewing us. America is worried about all these things. We're not worried about the things that matter, oftentimes. Um, and so when the Department of Defense is worried about that, then others, what does someone like Vladimir Putin think? And when our schools are worried about this versus teaching the fundamentals, what does then that, what, what are the parents of, of children who are like, no, I want my kids to learn the fundamentals. What does that leave for the rest of us? We're not willing to participate in these things. And again, we come back to strength. We come back to leadership. And right now we are missing those in uh, in, in large quantities uh, across the board. Because we don't care board. about merit and we don't care about competence in part. It's about signaling, virtue signaling, and other ancillary 
things like this uh, former education activity chief for diversity, equity, and inclusion. You see the same problem. We had a uh, a judicial nominee, uh, a federal magistrate being uh, nominated to the federal district court bench uh, this week by the Biden administration, who was wholly incapable of understanding a basic principle taught in law school when uh, Senator John Kennedy asked him how he would analyze what was known as a as a as a as a Brady motion, everyone who ever went to law school, no matter how long ago it was, I haven't been to law. I haven't even practiced law in twenty years. I know what a Brady motion is, and you don't have to. You're not you're not a lawyer, but but this guy is, and this guy has been a federal magistrate for five years, and he could he he can he a Brady motion. Just FYI, has to do with the prosecution turning over exculpatory evidence to a defendant. And this guy thought it had something to do with the Second Amendment because he was thinking of the Brady campaign to end gun violence. You know, you, 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 you try to check a box to fulfill some kind of ancillary measurement to make sure that your people, you know, are, you know, sufficiently uh, racially uh, racial minorities or sufficiently checking this box or that. And you lose the ability to get people who are competent. That's that's what's going on here. The, by the way, this is what's behind the story that's now leaking out about Joe Biden having second thoughts about Kamala Harris. Well, why did he think she'd be good in the first place? The problem is we have a little dirty, a dirty little secret. We know why he thought she would be necessary in the first place, and it had nothing to do with her competence, right? Yeah, I mean, because again, we we are uh, some of us. I shouldn't say we. Yeah. Some of us are busier. <laughs> thinking about how to check boxes and how to make a bunch of people happy because we have to cover all of our bases in terms of um, things that aren't actually um, important uh, and uh, versus saying like, hey, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your whoever, whatever it is, are you competent for this? Are you um, are you ready to go? And as opposed to working at lifting up all these individuals, again, regardless of their background uh, and their racial background, ethnicity, um, we should be more worried about lifting them up yeah. and providing them meaningful mm-hmm. work and all of these things that we spend a lot of time talking about as a country and less about, um, again, the color of the skin and everything else. Yeah. And so, you know, fine, you want to talk about diversity and what that looks like. Uh, we have we have gone from how we applied that in the 90s and early 2000s to a whole other world. I mean, again, right. imagine if we charted this out on a map yeah. or on a, on a like a like a graph, right. the rate in which we are getting into crazy town is is like exponentially increasing now. It was like a slow progression, and now it's like just hockey stick. I mean, we're, we're just catapulting into just craziness on all of these fronts. I don't know how you would measure it in a poll, but somewhere, somehow, some way, we can think about this, unless you already have an answer. I wouldn't expect you to. This notion that I think people here just feel that we're not a serious country anymore, or if we're not a serious country, it's that we are focused on all the things we should. We're, we're misdirected in our focus. We're, de- we're misprioritized and deprioritized in the essentials of what we expect from our public officials and public leaders. Um, there, there, there seems to be that which fuels this general funk that's going around that I think people just have about their country right now, George. We, we've got to figure out a way to measure this somehow, right? Because I think a candidate can seize on it. I think a candidate, particularly a conservative candidate, could seize on the issue of we have serious issues and we need to start taking them seriously. And we are a serious country and we need to start taking ourselves seriously once again, I think. 100%. Yeah. 100%. And then cast a vision of hope. Yeah. Exactly. regarding those serious issues of where America wants to be, where do we want yeah. to be versus completely degrading American people and American values and ideals because of things that have happened in the past. Yeah. We need to solve those things, but we need to solve it from a vision of hope 
going into the future. Yeah. Let's uh, go back to thinking critically rather than frivolously. We've replaced the critical with the frivolous. George Kaloff from the Resolute Group. Thank you, sir. Have a great weekend. You too as well, Seth. Thank you. God bless. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Such a beautiful song, Darling Companion, sung by uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter. It's written by John Sebastian. What was his band, David? The Lovin' Spoonful. The Lovin' Spoonful. Know that. Yeah. Jill Steinbach is uh, on leave now, blessedly, um, from Stanford Law School. She is their associate dean for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Here's another unserious thing. I don't know why law schools need deans for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, anyone who's set foot on a campus knows that there are no problems with these things. And as far as a law school goes, why it needs its own dean for this, anything you wanted to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion, presumably you would be taught in, I don't know, con law when you cover the 14th Amendment or civil procedure. I mean, it's an odd thing that you need deans for these things. I was reminded of this because the Wall Street Journal gave her, she's the woman who created the, uh, uh, created the, um, the ruckus over at Stanford Law by confronting the speaker from the federal, uh, from the Fifth Circuit, uh, Judge Duncan from the Fifth Circuit that the Federalist Society invited. She's the one who said, is the juice worth the squeeze. She has a self-serving op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today, and I think my favorite line is this as she's trying to justify what she did. Uh, this is, I think, my favorite line. Talk about the unserious world we live in, the abnormal world we live in. She writes this, quoting directly, I stepped up to the podium to deploy the de-escalation techniques in which I have been trained, which including getting the parties to look past conflict and see each other as people. Well, first of all, if she was trained in this, she didn't do a very good job. The melee ensued and got worse once she took sides, sides with the hecklers and the heckler's veto, and got in the face of the judge asking him if the juice was worth the squeeze. But I love the idea that we have to now train deans and de-escalation techniques for places as elite as Stanford Law School. I mean, anyone who's been to college, my gosh, much less a graduate school or a law school or a medical school, we need deans trained in de-escalation techniques? These were not problems. These were not problems until we invented them as problems. We, we, created, prob we, we, we created solutions in search of problems, and thus then, because we had the solution— Deans of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion trained in de-escalation techniques, we created the problems for them to try and solve. But they don't solve them. They don't. They make them worse. Whatever training she had in de-escalation escalated the situation. If she just said to the students, if you don't want to hear this message, leave, or raise questions afterwards because the judge will take questions. She didn't. She sided with those heckling. By the way, among the heckles were that his daughters should be raped. The guest speaker's daughters were, should be raped. And she sided with the students shouting that crud. 
that crud. Hadley Arcus uh, has a piece over at uh, Anchoring Truths, his website, anchoringtruths.org, saying he faced this um, at Stanford somewhat more civilly, but with protests nonetheless when he spoke there a few years back. Um, He says, um, the treatment of Judge Duncan was not merely conduct ill-fitting a law school. It was a show of contempt for the principles of respect for civil discourse that are utterly necessary to the character of any place that would call itself a university. How can such incidents be prevented in the future? Any future lecture could be handled as an RSVP affair so that the law school would have the names of everyone in attendance, and if the protesters had the courage of their convictions, they would confirm their names in the army of protest. But there were also cameras at Stanford, and as it turned out, a group on campus was able to identify some of the key students who led the walkout, and that elicited in turn, of course, cries of protest. There are cameras at work at the famous protest at my own University of Chicago in 1969 when students occupied the administration building for over a week. Forty-two of the students were expelled. Eighty-one put on different levels of suspension. But that took place at a university with an administration ready to say, in effect, that what you've done severs your moral connection to the character of this university or to any other serious academic place. The important word there is serious. These places aren't serious anymore. They don't take teaching. They don't take education seriously. And I worry increasingly this country isn't serious anymore. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Is that in the mood? In the mood. Doc Severinsen and the Tonight Show Band. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? Stock market volatility, a possible recession on the horizon, banks failing. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the Fed or the stock market? A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It is a secure collateralized portfolio, and it delivers a high fixed interest rate up to 10.25%. You are Interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. Talk to my friends at Y Refi. They're locally based right here. You can visit with them. You won't get a sales pitch. They leave that up to others like myself and Larry Elder. They just like talking about what it is that they do and letting it speak for itself. Y Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. It's the word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. David, we spoke to you earlier about what you learned this week, but we didn't find out what button you had. What's your lapel pin today? It says Pete Wilson for president, 96. This is one of the greatest... Sore subjects Uh in one of my greatest friendships. Um, Presidential historian, guest, and longtime friend, Tevi Troy. Um, Tevi Troy and I uh, made a bet in 1996 as Uh to who would become the nominee in the Republican Party. The fact that you are wearing this pin goes greatly to substantiating my argument um, because I remember very clearly saying to Tevi, if Pete Wilson gets in the race, he will win the nomination. 
and Tevi took someone else. I don't remember. It probably might. It probably was Bob Dole who was the ultimate uh, nominee. And um, and Tevi thinks that uh, Tevi thinks that um, that he won the bet. And I said he didn't win the bet uh, because Pete Wilson never got in. So actually, your pin substantiates Tevi's point because your pin indicates that he did get in the race. So let's make sure Tevi doesn't hear this. In fact, let's erase the last five minutes of this conversation. No, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that was a great um, <clears throat> that was a great campaign. Ninety six. Uh, Bob Dole gave a couple great speeches that are forgotten. He gave a great speech on Hollywood. Um, I believe that was uh, that was a speech he gave after seeing um, Independence Day. Didn't it, Will Smith Independence Day come out around that time? It would have been around that time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, and he talked about the importance of the kind of thing Hollywood should be doing. And he had this phrase people made fair made fun of him for using in that speech. Uh, we spent a lot of time on getting that phrase. What was the phrase he used? I think it was nightmarish depravity, I believe, was the was the phrase Bob Dole got uh, made sport of in 96. Um, and then, of course, he chose uh, my boss, Jack Kemp, to be his, uh, his running mate. And uh, everyone thought that that would light the campaign on fire because Jack was so known to be so dynamic. Uh, but, you know, it's a lesson in politics of running when the iron's hot um, and when your iron is hot. This is the argument people are making on behalf of Ron DeSantis for those who say he should wait. Um, others will say, well, no, he's governor now. Who knows what, what it looks like five years from now when he'll have been out of office by then. You go when the iron's hot. A lot of people said that about Jack Kemp in retrospect. They really wanted him uh, to run. Uh, they wanted him to run hard for president in '88, and he tried and didn't make it. And they wanted him to run again in '92. That would have been that would have been a um, that would have that wouldn't have made sense because he would have to be going up against an incumbent Republican. But by '96, time was gone, uh, and maybe the lesson was he should have run for some other office. Perhaps governor of New York would have been a good office for him to run for. But by '96, uh, those opportunities for both uh, Bob Dole and Jack Kemp had had come and gone. And of course, uh, I don't think Pete Wilson really would have fared any better or any differently. But it was interesting when you think about Pete Wilson, the governor of California, good governor, strong governor, yeah. strong on borders, yeah, and a really really Reaganite senator. Um, uh, when he was in the U.S. Senate before becoming governor of California. And then at the end, funny enough, he he started his career as a, as a conservative, known as a conservative Republican. And yes, you're right. He, he, he was pushing the border issue as well early on. Uh, but then he kind of left office uh, being seen as the moderate, a moderate in the party. Um, and I don't. I don't know what more to say about any of that. That's everything I know what to say about. It. I, rem- I remember in grad school. I do remember in grad school someone saying Pete Wilson is a good reason not to be a Republican. That's what I remember. <laughs> what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say I think he represents the old California Republican establishment that we haven't seen since the likes of even Governor Schwarzenegger. Yeah, probably. And it's an establishment I don't particularly care that much for. I prefer the establishment of Ronald Reagan when he represented it. Yes. You know, I, I and and the kinds of people he surrounded himself with. You know, that's the important thing too about being a governor or being a president. The people you surround yourself with. So, he surrounded himself with um with uh, these great 
conservative car dealers, and of course Henry Salvatore, who I got to meet, who was a an inventor um, and discoverer in the engineering and oil industry, uh, and Ed Meese, you know, Ed Meese, who would later become Reagan's attorney general, uh, was picked out of a position that, you know, people might think isn't that big of a deal. He was the Alameda County district attorney. And as the district attorney in Alameda County, he was tough on the student protesters. He was tough on the student rioters. And Reagan kind of liked that pluck. And uh, so lesson there is, you know, you never you never know who's paying attention. Uh, and then ultimately, Ed Meese became not only uh, chief of staff, but attorney general for Ronald Reagan and kicked off this thing that's so much in the news and taken for granted. Uh, we've been talking for a couple of weeks now about the controversy at Stanford Law School because the Federalist Society dared to bring a conservative judge from the Fifth Circuit to speak there. The Federalist Society owes its its credit and this whole notion of original uh, uh, original jur- original intent jurisprudence owes a lot to Ed Meese as the Attorney General. He gave a lot of speeches on a jurisprudence of original intent, as opposed to intent, as opposed to the living Constitution, the ever evolving notion that the liberals and the left in jurisprudence likes to likes to exploit that the Constitution is not a fixed thing, but uh, like Woodrow Wilson said of the Declaration not being a fixed thing, can be reinterpreted in every generation. Well. You can say what you want about a declaration and a declaration of independence, but think about the meaning of a constitution. What is a constitution if it can be constantly updated uh, aside from the manner in which it prescribes its own updating, its own emendation, which is the amendment process? If you can just do it by fiat, if you can just do it by legislation, then you know what? In no way is it a constitution. And I think that actually probably is the dream of the liberals these days. Okay, a lot there just from the Pete Wilson thing. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. I was just thinking during the break there, David, you you, you, you can wind me up with just whatever political pin you have. You wind me up and I can, I can go a little. I can probably do that on about three or four different issues, uh, presidential or – Presidential candidates or campaigns or politics might be one of them. I could probably do it on a few other things. Uh, Music, maybe. Uh, Barbecue. Restaurants. Uh, Well, barbecue, more food. Yeah, Aristotle, uh, perhaps. Sasquatches. uh, (laughs) Trumpet. Do you have issues you could just... You don't. You you could just someone could just pull your string and on the back of your neck and you could classic film, huh? Classic movies. What you got one on on deck for the weekend? Uh, well, like a man I, for I all seasons, so. or oh, you taught me no, something. No, it was going to be a trial at Nuremberg because of what we talked about do that, last time. I was do on. that. Yeah, it's a great movie. I what from, did I teach you? You taught me that when I was earlier in the week. It must have been Wednesday when you were here. I was uh, lamenting with Brett Johnson that in one year in Hollywood, like 1963, they could make like ten great movies, like uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, Days of Wine and Roses, To Kill a Mockingbird, whatever happened to Baby Jane. And what were some of the other ones? Cleopatra. Uh, yeah, from, from Here to Love. Eternity, maybe. What, nah, would that have been in that year? What? I don't remember. I don't remember. Long Day's Journey into Night was that year. But the, all of these movies were great movies. And then you reminded me that was also the same year as... Um, as uh, what, what, uh, James Bond, right? Yes, uh, from Russia with, with love. love, from Russia with Love, and that stars Robert Shaw. So you know, at some point, 
you need to start watching some Robert Shaw movies. There's only two others that are worth watching as far as I know. Have you seen Black Sunday? No. It's decent. <laughs> Was it Robert Shaw and Black Sunday? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, so it's you're ahead a of me. terrorist plot to huh? uh, This is the one with the, the big Super blimp? Yes, yeah, a big yes. blimp. I remember the novel sitting on a... Sitting at my neighbor's um, and my neighbor's house, it must have been a popular book around 1977. I'm thinking so, about there, about, somewhere yeah. about there. So the a man for all seasons with Robert Shaw. Please see that. Yes, and then of course Jaws. But I think this weekend is Trial at Norman. Okay, but you know you can also see more if Hollywood can make ten great <laughs> movies in a year like they used to be able to. You can watch two great movies in, in a, a weekend. weekend yeah. yeah, you have two days and and more than a couple of hours. Uh, that's the list of movies I'll convey for the audience. I can do books, too, if you want. We can have book recommendations. But for movies, if you haven't seen, these are must-sees. A Man for All Seasons, A Lion in Winter, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Jaws, and uh, I I think I would now add Trial at Nuremberg. I, I, I got through 50 years of life without having seen it, and I kicked myself having seen it. It is a great, wonderful classic movie. All right, thus concludes our cultural moment. We have a lot more coming up. We're going to enter into theology with Rabbi Elush. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 